Welcome to PR Tech Wednesdays, the weekly webinar where thought leaders discuss the latest in PR and PR tech. If it's Wednesday, it's PR Tech Wednesdays. Welcome back. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. We do this every Wednesday from 12 to 1. It's free, and you can sign up at PRTechWednesdays.com. We have a terrific panel of experts for you today from film, TV, and music to discuss what's going on in Hollywood and what it's going to take to get Hollywood back to work. But first, from a broader perspective, here's my take. I was talking to a friend who said that since the lockdown, she's actually been much more productive than she was when she was commuting 45 minutes each way to her office in downtown LA. Now, she's not in entertainment PR, but like us, she is a knowledge worker who shows up and works on a computer. As the velocity of the contagion subsides, it appears we're entering the containment phase. As municipalities loosen restrictions and business leaders explore how best to resume operations, a lot of us are asking ourselves, what's the real value of commuting to an office so we can work on a computer in the presence of others? Now, if you list the benefits and drawbacks of working in close proximity to, close, uh, to coworkers under the watchful eye of a, of a supervisor, the prospect of working nine to five alongside others is no longer a foregone conclusion. <clears throat> on the one hand, if you work alongside others, it's easier to bounce ideas off each other. But on the other hand, how do those interruptions interfere with a knowledge worker's ability to focus and deliver elite level work? Are the benefits of serendipitous encounters that occur between coworkers collaborating spontaneously offset by the numerous interruptions that make it harder to focus and deliver deep thinking? What's more important? making sure employees appear to be working, or making sure their work is exceptional. If an employee can deliver exceptional work on schedule, does it matter when or where they do it? Now, in his work, in his book, Deep Work, Cal Newport writes, breakthroughs occur when you reach maximum cognitive intensity. It may seem like a benefit to have people working on site because you can ask them questions, as they arise, but that method of interaction is undisciplined and it depletes a knowledge worker's ability to focus. Although we don't acknowledge it, managers have long considered an employee's physical presence to be a deliverable. In fact, for many knowledge workers like PR people, wages are primarily based on being physically present in an office for 40 hours a week. And in this environment, Underperforming employees get paid as long as they show up. As long as you're in the office, you can hide in plain sight. That's tougher to do if you're working remotely, right? In that case, value is a factor of quality and quantity and of your output. Now that we're all distributed, working independently and remotely, it's no longer possible to hide in plain sight. My clients are all comparing the value of full-time employees to freelancers and asking themselves if it makes sense to keep anyone other than rock stars on staff full-time. By necessity, COVID-19 has advanced our remote workforce management fluency. 
As CFOs look to cut costs and reconsider their commercial real estate obligations and payroll, now is a time of tremendous opportunity for freelance knowledge workers to augment in-house teams through virtual technologies like teleconferencing and activity streams. Like it or not, the coronavirus has accelerated digital transformation, calling into question the value of working at a central location and opening up the playing field for freelancers and consultants. Subscribe to my newsletter for more on how to leverage this opportunity to win new business at ericschwartzman.com forward slash blog. And let's get started. My guests today are Eric Deutsch, Wynn Mitchell Rohrbaugh, and Alfred Hopton. Let's start by letting them make brief introductions, starting with Wynn. So tell us about yourself and your practice. My name is Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh. I have been a digital strategist for, and I'm sorry, my printer is going off in the back for no reason. Um, I have been a digital strategist for about 10 years now. Um, some of my clients are extremely well-known and I've worked for a lot of smaller brands and studios. Um, I started out as a journalist. I started out as an internet marketer. Um, I worked for Fox, William Morris, DirecTV, um, and then Us Magazine as a senior reporter. Um, I realized sometime in the mid-2010s that publishing was not going to remain the way everybody thought it was going to be. I could tell just from working at Us Weekly uh, starting way back in 2009 that, you know, publishing was not going to have any sustenance. It wasn't going to be able to sustain itself long-term. So I decided to cobble together all of my skills into being a digital strategist. So I work with talent and influencers to generate a strategy, a holistic strategy for them that uh, runs across platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And I also bring my editorial background and research background to help them understand the messaging that they're putting out, help them understand the audience that they're working with, who their audience is, and just help them have really like fluid and interesting personas. Great. Um, Eric. Hey, uh, well, thank, uh, thank you for having me on the show, Eric. And I, I have to say, I am a big fan of yours. I've been uh, watching your webinar now, and I've listened to your podcast, I think it was up to 15 years ago, uh, on the record online with Eric Schwartzman, so I'm a huge fan. Um, I have been working in PR, and it almost pains me to say this, but for more than 20 years. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, but it, it seemed like a natural... A uh, place for me to go when I was a little kid. My favorite uh, TV show was the local news. <laughs> so I've always been really into media, love news media in particular. And I work with a lot of big agencies and small agencies, really everything in between. Uh, and then in 2004, I uh, launched my, my own kind of micro boutique, uh, Excel PR group, and have been doing that ever since. Uh, work with a lot of different types of clients. Um, with respect to today's discussion, I work with a number of clients on the business end of entertainment. Uh, I don't you know, do traditional entertainment publicity. I oftentimes say I won't work with anyone who's you know, got talent. I work with the business side of entertainment. Um, I am also very active with uh, the Public Relations Society of America, PRSA. I want to give a shout out. Uh, everyone should check out the LA chapter if you haven't. 
Um, also teach at UCLA Extension. Been doing that for a number of years. Uh, and I'm very happy to be here today. Alfred. Hi, I'm Alfred Hopton. I am an entertainment publicist or have been for 25 years. Um, as of late, though, I've kind of done some talent production and talent work. Um, well, maybe for the last 10 years, I've worked with some NBC shows. Uh, I also worked with Top Gear USA and most recently working on the CW uh, TV series Fool Us with Penn and Teller doing talent work. Um, but I began doing music publicity in 95 at Rogers and Cowan and then also did TV and film at BWR. I worked at Access Hollywood, The Laugh Factory, Triple uh, Seven PR. And now most of what I do is freelance entertainment publicity from independent films, uh, faith-based films, and then, you know, any type of uh, PR that may come that ties into either broad consumer entertainment or um, consumer PR. That's pretty much where I've been for the last 25 years. Just a little backstory. Alfred and I met at Rogers and Cowan, you know, that long ago. And, um, one of the accounts we had that we worked on was the Grammy Awards. And, uh, you know, this was pre-internet for the most part. And um, we were responsible for the press room. So we would meet the talent on, in the wings when they got their trophy. And we would bring them into the press room and walk them through an area for photography. That was always Alfred. Alfred used to be the one who could handle the paparazzi. There'd be like bleachers, literally, and hundreds of paparazzi. And, you know, Courtney Love would, you know, saunter by, and it would be like Christmas, man. The, the flashes would go off, and then they'd hand them off to the newsroom. And that was basically a classroom-style setup, and yeah. you'd have a bunch of print journalists barking out questions you know, nothing exclusive happened there. Then they had electronic. Now, in the day, electronic was TV and radio. But that, again, was not exclusive. And then we had one-on-ones for MTV, BET, VH1, you know, the outlets that were really strong music outlets. And I remember my last year with Rogers and Cowan, there was a new style. And they were taking us through it. They said, hey, this is going to be the internet realm. And uh, here's what we want you to do. Bring the town... And we're going to try to do something. We're not sure if it's going to work. It's called live chat. We're going to try to do live text chat in real time. And we'll see if we can upload photos. That was like a big deal, right? And so, you know, our job when we're bringing talent through is to try to convince them to do as much press as possible before they split, right? So no one wanted to do internet. Like nobody wanted to do internet. The only one who did our internet is like best new gospel artist, you know, best new electronic album, all these guys that weren't welcome in the one-on-ones, you know, they, they hung out there because there was no other action for them. But I remember seeing that. And Eric, I don't know if you know this story, Eric, Eric Deutsch. I remember seeing that and saying to myself, man, this is totally going to change PR because now the internet is a portal into the press room. What do you need the press anymore? You can just go straight to the people. And I launched iPressroom at that time. I left Rogers and Cowan. It was the first online newsroom service where a PR person could build a newsroom, built that up, sold it, you know, uh, did another company after that. But I mean, caught the bus to the digital age as a result of that by necessity, right? And then had to integrate Facebook and YouTube and all those things into the system as they arose. Um, I'm thrilled to have Adam Klein. I'm thrilled to have Babette. I'm thrilled to have Bob Busseri. Carmen Huerta, 
Sherry Warner, Esther Torres, Joel Kamen. Joel, will we do in the panel next month? John Kiefer, Laura Livingston, Lena Ali. If you would, Michael Shepard, uh, Michelle Monson, uh, Natalie Sfider, uh, Rondell Rio, Sally Olmstead. Hey. Hey. Alfred, we got Sally. Sally's in the house. Oh, then. Welcome, That's Sally. Uh, Steve Boyajian and uh, Tim McMahon, welcome back. Tell us all where you are, if you're in uh, uh, PR, if you're in entertainment or PR or not, or what type of PR you're in. Just put that in the chat room, what type of PR you do, so that we can see that and focus our comments uh, in a way that will be useful to you. Um, and then, of course, you know, the chat room is open, and then so are the, is the Q&A. If you want to pose a question, the chat room's open to network and talk and exchange links and phone numbers or whatever. But um, if you want to ask a question, do me a favor, put it in the Q&A so that I have them all there. And then I hope you're camera ready. As, uh, as, as uh, they said in Sunset Boulevard, I hope you're ready for your close-up. Okay? Because we're bringing you on camera to ask your questions. All right, so let's kick it off. So, you know, just sort of out of the gate, and I'll throw this out to sort of all of you and see who, who answers first. What's going on? What's going on with your, your clients? Uh, you know, who's quiet, who's not? Um, what are some of the challenges that you're looking at now? Uh, what are your forward-looking prospects looking like? What's your billing looking like? What's happening? I mean, are you decimated? Who wants to kick it off? Um, I'd be happy to. Um, I've been seeing more and more, and I think anyone who watches uh, news media would see this more and more coverage of entertainment is really focused on the industry, not on the usual, um, you know, new projects coming out, celebrity news. And that makes sense because there's very little coming out, but there has been a tremendous impact on the industry with all the shutdowns and uh, delayed events, uh, film festivals, awards programs. Um, one thing I've, I've found really interesting is the fact that when there are junket type interviews, you get to see celebrities at home now which, um, yeah, you've done in the past, but not to the extent that you do now. Um, real quick, I, I work with, like I said, B2B clients. Uh, I represent the California Film Commission for many years. I work with the uh, AFCI, which is an international association of film commissions. I uh, work with service providers in the industry. And I, I break down what's happening into a three-act structure. Uh, which I think is pretty appropriate, in which Act 1 was getting information out about the unprecedented shutdown, everything that was shutting down, and that immediate impact. Um, and then Act 2 was about assessing the damage, um, looking at what the impact is really on the industry in terms of lost revenue, and looking at what's happening to workers, because the entertainment industry has a lot of below-the-line workers. When they uh, a project goes under for a short time. They, they actually lose their, their paycheck. And it was also about looking at how the industry was stepping up. Uh, government and companies like Netflix, for example, uh, having these financial assistance programs with hundreds of millions of dollars to help, help workers. And then Act 3, which is where we are now, which is all about guidelines to help reopen the industry and what is actually going to be open to production in the days ahead. So I, I like to look at what's happening in this kind of three-act structure. Uh, you mentioned billings. I'm holding steady for now, but everything could change, I realize, in an instant. Who's jumping in? Don't wait for me. <laughs> uh, 
You know, for me, it's interesting. I've, I've earned more business and inquiries. Um, I think just from a perspective of working in digital, I think it's still, believe it or not, it's just uncharted territory for a lot of people that are in traditional PR and marketing. Um, it's been my focus practically my whole life. Like I was one of the first kids on my block to have the internet. People used to, we used to, after school in the sixth grade, people, my whole like class would come over to my house cause I had a uh, dial up and I had AOL. Um, so the internet has always been a part of my life since I was about 12. I, I was obviously analog and, and watched the, the burgeoning uh, era of digital, but it just feels like it's been a part of my world for quite a long time. So I'm comfortable in that space. Um, I'm seeing, and I hear from a lot of my partners that um, they're having a lot of trouble with, you know, did uh, uh, entertainer, uh, entertainers and influencers who are traditional entertainers and influencers. They're having a lot of trouble keeping them uh, digitally aware, a lot of tech support issues, a lot of this person just needs someone. So that's where I'm getting a lot of inquiries. So I'm blessed in that sense. Uh, I am also still nervous because after a while, I think that if you don't know what 2021 looks like, if you don't know some of some artists I've worked with, for instance, I worked with Jennifer Lopez. This is somebody who has her entire life planned out for the next five years. So the things that, you know, I, I'm, I'm still talk to her manager and deal with her team a lot. And, you know, one of the biggest things that, that is impacts like touring film schedules, filming. Um, and that is for someone like her, that's a problem. You know, she can't really nail down like what's going on and that affects her bottom line. It affects her the next two, three years of her life. Some of the clients that I have right now, um, they were in the middle of productions and production completely shut down and they don't know when they're going back. So there's only so much you can do to sort of push and rejigger things and, and before it's like, okay, then what am I doing? Why do I need a digital person? We haven't reached that point yet. I'm finding that, you know, and no offense to my PR colleagues here and out, out there, but I'm finding that... Um, Publicists are being put on hiatus, but I'm not. Okay, that's, I don't want anybody to not go without, but guess what? I also don't want to take on more work. <laughs> so I'm just finding that it's like one of those things where you got to be careful for what you wish for. I am thankful that I have only had to sort of, I've only had one client go on hiatus until uh, September and I'm fine with that. But again, that person still is needy and needs me. So we're just trying to work and find balances and what am I, what can I do if I, you know, maybe I'll go a quarter of a payment that their retainer for the month and just see how that goes. But yeah, like, um, it's a catch 22. It's, it's, it's just one of those things. It's where you don't want to be without, but you also just want to don't want to be overwhelmed. If you're open to, uh, if you want a referral from, uh, from Wynn for new business, put your information in the chat room and, and she can send the overflow your way. I love money, so please inquire. <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> I love money. <laughs> I'm not saying don't send me work. Well, maybe, they'll give, maybe they'll give you a piece if you refer. You right. know, that's true too. That's true too. <laughs> Alfred, Alfred, what's happening? So I kind of was fortunate in that when everything got shut down, I had just finished on the Penn and Teller show, so at least I had a buffer. But once everything kicked in and production stopped, then yeah, it bit. Um, 
film that I'm supposed to start working on it, it, shooting in Oklahoma is still on hiatus. Every other thing else that's kind of event and seasonal that I would work on is on hiatus. Obviously um, I have kind of started doing some work with more tech based and non entertainment based companies. Um, one's an SEO that I'm working with, but the majority of what I do tied to entertainment is frozen. So. Got it. I actually have to, I become a Mulliner and I'm making hats. As you can see here, I am in my hat shop and that's how I'm picking up the slack, you know, in these slow times. Um, so here's a question from Sally Olmstead. She says, I'm working on creating a plan to reopen offices. Definitive sources are not so easy to find regarding highly detailed information. Anyone? Uh, depends on what kind of office. On definitive sources or insights on reopening Hollywood, uh, film, TV, music. If, if it's about production specifically, um, you have the industry being the studios, the Motion Picture Association, uh, AMPTP, the guilds, the unions, uh, just about everybody working on guidelines and protocols right now. Um, ultimately, though, while everyone's working together, ultimately it's going to depend on what the governor says. Uh, here in California, Governor Newsom has a four-stage plan for reopening the economy, and it has to be announced where film and TV production will fall within those four stages. Um, once we know that, um, then we'll have a much better idea. Sally's on a yacht. Yeah, living hey. large. Wow, look at that. You got to have some fun with this Zoom thing, you know. My my last background was the Downton Abbey Library, but it was a little stuffy. No, this is great. So I decided to take it outside. Looks so, like the ocean is very still today. It's really still, and there's a bored woman in the background just looking out at the ocean. I don't know if you can see her, but she's bored rigid. At any rate. Um, glad to glad to be chatting with people face to face. It's lonely in my dining room. <laughs> so, my question and the question I'm getting from uh, clients and also just people in the industry is the the pr the process and the procedures for opening up. Going back to any office, it could be a doctor's office, it could be you know a law firm, it could be you know, a PR agency, it could be any kind of office. And so I've been talking to people at Salesforce and Intuit and government people. Yesterday, um, I received a notice from the World Economic Forum that the conference they were going to have in April in San Francisco got moved to October, but that has been turned into a virtual event and they will not gather in person until April of 2021. So wow. this, this tells me if the World Economic Forum is fearful of gathering and getting figuring a way out to do it and also with international travel involved for a lot of the members that I think we're in for a longer haul than I, you know, anyone ever imagined. Also, I got information this morning that Florida and Georgia are no longer reporting cases because they don't have 
that there's a monetary incentive to reopen and get government funds from the White House trough. But if you are keeping things closed and your test numbers are going up, um, you're not going to get the money. So there's some censorship issues going on around the truth of what is actually happening. And then from a doctor at USC earlier today um, said the worst is still yet to come. And if you have kids, they should not be out playing with their friends in the neighborhood. If you don't have to go out and mix and mingle, don't do it. If you do, put on a mask. If, you're, if you have on a mask and everyone else has on a mask, there's 1.5% chance that you'll spread it or get it. If you don't have on a mask and only one person has on a mask, it goes up over 50% risk. So the, the mask thing, no matter if we open offices next week or at the end of the year, we're all going to be wearing masks. So fashionable masks, this is what we're looking for. Night with smiles on them so you can tell that people aren't mad at you when you walk in wearing a mask or that you're not going to rob the store when you show up. That, that's, that's, what's, that's what I'm hearing. That was this morning's load from a variety of sources. So I don't know. You know I, I've been told to plan to reopen offices and write a plan. So I'm like, okay, I am working on a plan. Alfred, you, you guys shoot in, thank you, Sally. Um, Alfred, you guys shoot in, um, in Vegas, right? Vegas. Yeah, so what's the deal in Vegas? Yeah. Penn and Teller shoot in their own theater at the Rio hotel in Vegas. Um, so I think one of the three reasons is that they've you know, all their equipment's there, every prop they need for their, to do their, their, magic is there. So it kind of, you know, obviously makes sense. Um, it's easy to get talent in and out. It's a hotel where people can stay. So doing it in Vegas for that show makes so much sense because it's part of the Penn and Teller brand. Um, so, you know, it, it happened right before anything really, the one thing that happened at the, at the, as it started, as, as the COVID started to break, Everyone was using hand sanitizer, washing their hands more, and keeping social distancing already. Um, I will say this: no one, no one reported any COVID illness after it, as far as I know. Um, and what's kind of funny is we even flew in uh, a contestant and a couple of his entourage from mainland China, and one was sick. And I mean, we don't know if if he had a regular flu or whatever, but we kept social distance from him and no one developed anything from that. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that, I'm no scientist, obviously, uh, but it seems uh, like. Really? I thought you were. <laughs> I, I feel I, like. I, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that people, I have a friend who's a very, she's done all the events. She's, you know, her clients have been the Hollywood athletic club in Los Angeles, London, hotel uh chateau marmont and she's booking events as early as november and she is being pitched and pitching to her clientele um timed entry which is mind-boggling to me because i don't know LA people are just as obnoxious as new yorkers no offense but like who's going to actually mind a timed entry 
and not cause a scene. Um, she's also seeing experiences where you take it away, like you take the, the entirety of the experience away with you, like a diorama. I don't know how well these things will work. I, I mean, we're a city and an industry that's so accustomed to gathering, mingling, like that's our entire aesthetic. Like that is what we're known for. That is what people from all over the world expect from us. I don't know how we're going to sort of double back. They're already talking about moving the Oscars, which is not a bad idea. They're already talking about there being no Emmys, there being no Venice Film Festival, Cannes Film Festival. I really do think that virtual experiences for now have to be sustainable. And I feel like because, again, not to be a snob about digital, but because so many people are limited in their understanding of what digital can do and their knowledge base on it, they don't want to explore what's possible. And I think about the Fortnite experience with Travis Scott, which was so amazing. I got Tell us that, about that. Tell us what happened. Well, Fortnite is a MMORPG game that you play mainly online. My stepson is obsessed with it and can play it 10 hours a day. Um, and Travis Scott lent, not lent, I'm sure he was paid handsomely for it, but he lent his image and his likeness and one of his new tracks from his album, to the game and had a five, uh, five events over the course of two days. So he performed for everyone, anybody who got into the room and we're talking about, there's over like a billion users. So if you were one of like the, I don't know, five or 600, 2000 to get into this, this was a bragging right that you got to be in the room with Travis Scott. So Travis Scott performed the song. He was built up and animated. My son was like under his legs and swimming around him. And it was a big thing. The thing about it is that there's really no takeaway from it. You talk about it. It happened. It was great. The thing about an event is you, you, you can, there's so much uh, media that comes from an event. There's tons of interviews. There's whispers, gossip, award, there's archive footage, an experience like a, a Travis Scott thing, especially for like a 10 year old. It was cool in the moment. But then what happens the next week? They get Steve Aoki and it falls flat because those kids have no idea who he is. They have no idea who Cascade is, right? So it's just, it's again, there's, there, I think, you know, marketers have to sort of have a better understanding of really who their audience is, who they're tuning content towards and how best to access that and then take that data so they can actually have an ROI on it. Hey, Eric, I know we got Ron with a question, but I just wanted to touch back on Sally's question real quick, if I may. Um, my question would be if, if uh, the job is to um, put together a PR plan for the reopening of an office or to actually put together a plan for the reopening of the office, which I wouldn't have any idea about. But if it's the PR plan portion of it, um, a couple of things I've found with my clients during this crisis is uh, first and foremost, don't be silent uh, because silence breeds you know, speculation and misinformation. And within the industry, people want information, even if it's only information about when they can get more information. Um, so definitely don't be silent. And then number two is um, don't be tone deaf. Uh, it's no secret that so much of what gets publicized in the entertainment industry is not you know, life and death. Uh, but the pandemic literally is life and death. And it's very important that all the messaging and, and all the uh, the PR strategy reflect that. So, uh, Ron Del Rio, welcome to PR Tech Wednesdays. Thank you. You had a question. 
Yeah, uh, it's kind of basic follow-up with Win in, in terms of uh, platforms. What platforms and new platforms do you see surviving post-pandemic, especially when you mentioned Fortnite, because I saw that article as well, but it's not suited for everybody, you know, and we're starting to see a lot of new sort of platforms take place, but are there any that stand out that you think will survive past all this? I really feel like we're seeing why Twitter is important. I don't know what Twitter is going to do to make money, <laughs> but it, Twitter is, is definitely important. Um, and I really like the product updates they've created just for, from a COVID perspective, right? Like they've made it a vertical inside search trend searches. And I think that's great. I think they're up to the minute, up to date. They've localized updates. So if you're in California, you're getting Gavin Newsom, you know, perched at the top when you're searching. Um, I think that's important. That's where you make a big, huge impact. That's where you're actually impactful. Um, I see spaces like Facebook. They're just drowning in the abyss. Um, it's getting harder and harder to reach through the muck and their product updates are merely set up to serve themselves. And I also feel like they're trying to really start blinding everybody with all these good, uh, you know, goodwill product updates because they're in, this election is going to be a shit show, excuse my language, but it, it's true. And there's an information problem that Facebook is the creator of, um, Ice-T on Twitter made a funny comment. I'm seeing less trolls on Twitter. Are they uh, laid off as well? And that's where you have a platform that is controlled versus Facebook, which is kind of unmanageable. I'm also finding that Reddit is becoming interesting again. Um, Reddit is really becoming informative. I think they've really gotten a handle on the nastier parts of that platform. And they've really created much more of a stronger community. But if we're talking about entertainment, if we're talking about that core audience, 18 to 34, when, it when you're talking about who's going to be able to sustain a platform it's tiktok all the way it's tiktok it's 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 just tiktok baby and i think it's also outside that 18 to 34 demo because a lot of people my age yeah. have really fallen into it and are all in love with leslie jordan now like he's amazing now he's he's on instagram but he's and, and thank you for bringing that up alfred again we're also seeing and I've been saying this a lot on Twitter, which is probably not a good thing because I probably am like making people mad. But a lot of people that are actors and actresses and singers aren't good at social media without someone doing it. Sure. They're, just, they're just really bad at it. And the emergence of that micro influencer, Leslie Jordan had like, what, 20,000 fans or followers on Instagram before this. Now he's like over 3 million. If you have somehow found a way to like create a space for yourself, you're doing better than a JLo. You're doing better than, you know, any other person that is, has hundreds of millions of followers specifically because you're a, a new voice and you're being honest about your situation. You're not showing off that your, your, you know, the, your beautiful house, which you're, I'm, I'm glad that people have, but you're like Leslie Jordan staying in an Airbnb next down the street from his mom in Tennessee. And that is compelling. There's a reason why 90 day fiance is so strong <laughs> ratings wise that it pushed the Kardashians off Sunday where they've been perched for 13 years. People are tired of audacious, aggressive. That's why no one else in, else in America except LA is worried about the Oscars, worried about the Emmy. They're worried about checks. Right. They're worried about how to feed their kids. That's important to us 
but it's now time, I think, for us as leaders to redefine what that experience is, and it might help us bring more of those people into our world. Ron, thank you so much for coming on screen and asking a question. Thank you. Um, I want to talk uh, for a minute about this uh, this Joe Rogan deal, Alfred. Um, first, of all, what's going on with Spotify and Joe Rogan? Well, they just signed him exclusively. Uh, I think he starts with them on their platform in September, and then here's what to me is interesting. Then everything goes to Spotify at the beginning of 2021. He won't be on YouTube anymore. And I, YouTube is the, this is what kind of makes me, I don't, I'm, I guess the word is curious. What's going to happen when he's no longer on YouTube? Because I, I mean, I love consuming three hours on YouTube of his long, like his Bernie Sanders thing was great. Everything he's ever done in long form usually turns out to be a great interview. But, but do you really like consume it, Alfred? Or do you just sort of have it on in the background? No, I can say, no, I consume. I'll watch. It's I'll partial watch. attention, man. You got partial attention on that. Well, I dig Joe. Maybe, it's, I don't know. I think Joe is the best of, of letting someone speak, but at the same time, asking them the pertinent questions. They have, there's no format. There's no sound bites that he's trying to get out of people. It's just a normal conversation, whether it's Elon Musk or it's, you know, anyone else. Um, and I will say this, this is the other thing about what Joe does is he'll take these one to two to three hour long interviews and then edit it into eight to 10 minute or smaller clips that you can then just watch a clip of. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. To me, this reminds me of when Howard went from terrestrial radio to Sirius satellite. What's it going to change? And I think this is the ramifications of content being more in the control of individuals. I don't want to say that Joe Rogan is necessarily PewDiePie, but he's in the same category of someone who has such a strong individual presence that they are now a 600 pound gorilla in the room. Yeah. So, so they're obviously trying to get more people to listen to podcasts on Spotify rather than iTunes. So I'd be curious to know from people that are attending today, are you listening to podcasts on Spotify? Because I find it to be unusable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I can't go back to where I was listening before. So I'm, I'm still listening to, and I don't, it's not like I think the iTunes app is really any good. It sucks too, the Apple podcast app. But, I mean, it's still better than the Spotify one at this point. Are you still listening to podcasts, Eric? Me? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Not like I did, though. I mean, to be honest with you, you really got me going in that regard. Um, Got my first MP3 player because of you. Um, So, you know, uh, not like I used to. I mean, there's so much more to consume now. We mentioned YouTube, um, Alfred. Uh, You know, sometimes I find that I spend – you know, three hours going down this, this hole in YouTube and I can't believe I've spent all that time. <laughs> um, so I, I don't religiously listen to podcasts like I used to, but I do watch webinars. I watch your webinar every week and I encourage others to do the same. Thank you. So, I was talking to my son. He's 15. I went into his room and he's got his laptop on his, you know, on his, he's in bed with the laptop on his, on his uh, legs. And I said, dude, what's going on? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm just grinding it out, man three hours on YouTube. <laughs> Goes you know, by quick. You know, what's interesting is that my stepson is 10. He watches YouTube while gaming. He watches it passively. He watches 
obviously people watching, you know, people, he watches people playing games. Um, but podcasts, podcasts, I mean, every data that I've, I've, I'm getting from not only my own podcast, but other podcaster friends is that it's listening is down because you're not commuting. You have a podcast? I do have a podcast. It's called Waiting to Exhale. On Tell us about it. It's a, it's a Gen X podcast. It's me and my co-host are Gen Xers. And we talk about how we relate to content today versus the content we consumed back when we were, you know, in our teens and young, being young people in the 80s and 90s and, and, and just, you know, the things we miss about it. We talk about everything that's out now and then we sort of figure out a way that it relates to how, what we grew up on. And what are you listening to? What podcasts do you listen to? You know, gosh, lately I haven't been listening to anything because it's harder for me to listen to podcasts at home. So I've been watching a lot of YouTube. I literally just let the algorithm do its thing. I start out with Bon Appetit channel, cooking channel, which I think is great, Test Kitchen. And then I kind of, you know my 90 day fiance updates. And then that's my favorite show. And then I kind of let the algorithm take me where it wants to go. I've been showing my stepson because I'm a Gen Xer. I've been showing him old Nickelodeon because I've been watching what he watches on Nickelodeon and it's terrible. So I've been showing him like Ren and Sippy and you can't do that on television so he can understand when content was great. Alfred, um, do us a favor, pop a link to your podcast in the chat room. Sure. Alfred, what are you listening to? What podcasts are you listening to? I'm a religious listener of the Tony Kornheiser podcast. Tony Kornheiser is a former Washington Post columnist. He has a show now on ESPN running 20-something years called Pardon the Interruption. It's very D.C.-based. It's a lot of Washington Post writers will show up on there, Chris Eliza, Chuck Todd. Um, it's predominantly sports-related, but Tony is a curmudgeon, and it's more of a character study of a 71-year-old curmudgeon. Um, and then the other, I like to get into some episodic podcasting. There's one out there right now called Wind of Change, which is about the uh, song Wind of Change by the Scorpions that came out in 1990. And amazingly enough, it was written by the CIA. Look for the podcast Wind of Change. It's pretty amazing uh, that they got a German rock band to sing a song to play in Russia to help <laughs> bring about the end of the Cold War. All right, let's write the ship back to entertainment PR and putting Hollywood back to work. Eric, you work on the B2B side of entertainment PR. Uh, you represent the California Film Commission. You used to represent Film LA. Um, plus, you have other clients in international trade associations and commercial uh, film commission professionals. How has B2B communications within the entertainment industry been affected by COVID-19 and the abrupt worldwide suspension of production that began a couple of months ago? Sure. Um, you know, I alluded to some of that earlier about that, that three-act structure for the pandemic thus far from a PR perspective, for me being focused on B2B, where, um, for example, with the film commissions, uh, the in initial assignment was really to get the word out. Uh, what is happening with production in that jurisdiction. And for a, a good number of weeks, it was all about what's being shut down and what restrictions are in place and what, um, you know, what ability do people have to travel to that locale? Uh, and then shifting again to, uh, you know, what the impact is. Well, how is that impacting the economy? 
and how is that impacting the industry and the workers? Uh, but what's really exciting is being in this third act now and trying to figure out where production is going to um, resume and, and how these different jurisdictions are going to communicate that. Um, I don't know if you guys have read, but there are reports that production is ramping back up in Iceland, in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, different parts of Europe. Um, we're a little bit more delayed here. Um, it's perhaps more complex environment here and we have a greater volume of production, but it's a really exciting time. Uh, and as I said earlier, people are starved for information. People in the industry are dying to find out what's going on. There's a huge vacuum or there could be a huge vacuum if these film commissions and these industry experts and guilds and unions, uh, were not stepping up uh, to provide information and people, people are dying for information the worst thing that the industry can do now or the worst thing that any of my clients could do now is just be silent because then they have no control over the narrative um, and misinformation would spread like wildfire. So I'm trying to encourage my clients to be active, be engaged, uh, to monitor discussions, correct misinformation and get the word out when they can. Um, you know, I do a lot of healthcare PR as well. And I oftentimes say that the first rule of public relations is just like the first rule of medicine which is, of course, to do no harm. Um, and when you have clients that work in government, you know, government agencies or trade associations, you got to be very cognizant of that too, do no harm. Um, but it's an exciting time right now. I, can, I can't wait for the next few months to roll out. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be a good rollout not, uh, we, and we won't go backwards. Joel, welcome to PR Tech Wednesdays. One sec, I just want to ask Eric a follow-up on that before uh, we do your question. You know, Eric, I'm getting all these emails from, you know, companies I haven't done business with in 10 years. I, I don't even know if I ever did business with them. And I get these emails from them about what they're doing as a result of COVID-19. And they're typically emails like, you know, we're washing our hands. Here's a link to the CDC. Here's a link to the SBA. And thank you very much. It's like someone in communications at that company decided if I don't put out an email, I'm going to look like I was asleep at the wheel. So I got to put something out. So I do. And it's, I call it swack. It's stuff we all know. And it's a waste of time to send, send that stuff out. So, I mean, if you don't have any new information, if you're not a first responder, if you don't, if you can't add valuable information to the conversation. Isn't it better to just keep quiet? You know, I like that SWAC uh, acronym. I'm going to use that for sure. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made either way. I mean, you, you don't want to appear to be asleep at the wheel. You don't want to appear to be irrelevant. You don't want to let the, the narrative happen without you. At the same time, you don't want to just be spewing information that isn't useful. It really is a balancing act. Uh, and I agree with you. And that's one of my most difficult uh, things that I have to do right now is try to dig down and find the relevant information that will be useful. And it, it depends on the, on the uh, medium that we're using as well. Um, you know, certainly when I'm pitching the trade publications, I have to have bona fide news. I can't call them and say, hey, things are going on as usual. And uh, I'll let you know later if there's some news, do you want to cover that? I actually have to give them legitimate information and earn that coverage. So I hear what you're saying. It, it is a challenge right now to remain relevant. If you don't have information, the trick is, is finding relevant information. That's why Joel, we get the big money. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, uh, what do you got? 
Okay, I'll unmute it here. Uh, a couple questions, and part of these are just uh, personal uh, interest questions. But you know, one thing is, you know, with Hollywood shut down, we're, we're because I guess there's a backlog of productions. We're still seeing new entertainment come out, new entertainment options while we're all sitting at home. How long will it be until we stop seeing new stuff come out? If this goes on too long, I'm curious about that. Two, you guys talked about the different social media platforms and eyeballs are actually, you know, not that there weren't already a lot of eyeballs there, but more people going over to social media for entertainment. Is there a threat to the industry? Are you guys concerned about that or all? Is that concerned with the shutdown and production shutdown being a concern? And thirdly, part of that related is, do you guys have any thoughts on um, Quibi, the new um, app that was launched? So those are my three part questions. I think Winner wants to say something about Quibi. Win. <laughs> Turn off. I talk so much, I can talk forever. Alfred, do you want to say something? <laughs> I mean, the only thing I was going to talk about in terms of content is I, I think we're, we're, there will be a window where we're recycling content. I saw that the CW is taking one of their shows from their DC streaming service and repurposing it onto the CW, Swamp Thing. And it's not a new production. It's they're just, they're just rerunning them now on another one. So I guess you could say in one sense, we're already running out of content, but then again, I think we'll just, you'll see people cherry pick and pull content from Canada, England, Australia to repurpose it here or, you know, however they want to. I, th I think you're going to start seeing a lot of best of, uh, you know, from the archives type type content. I've already seen quite a bit of that. Um, also related to that, but not directly related, is when production does ramp back up, uh, we're going to see a lot of pandemic-themed films and TV shows. I already read oh about one uh, just today from Michael Bay, um, which is supposed to take place two years into the future, and it's about a pandemic that will not end. So oh, I can't wait to watch that. Yeah, right. I really want to see that. I'm ready for a romantic comedy. Okay, that's what I need. Romantic <laughs> pandemic comedy. Give me something. Let me escape, baby. I mean, this is perfect escapism, you know, uh, environment for escapism entertainment. I don't think that anybody's going to miss being outside. I think people, I'm sorry, I don't think anybody's going to enjoy forever being inside and consuming content when it's safe and time to do so in droves, people will go and experience things in real time in real life. So I don't think social media is, it's just not set up for that. I think it's more something that young kids can do, but, if, but I'm already seeing that Gen Z, that Gen Alpha, they want to be outside. They do want to be outside sometimes. They do want to be with their friends and interacting together. As far as like Quibi goes, I'm sorry, you know, those people are all very smart and rich, so I don't know how this happened. Um, I think I know how it happened. Um, I think the biggest issue is that they lost that market. They never had a chance at market share by starting out with not being able to screenshot content. Second screening is literally how we got reality television. Second screening, being able to react to something and have somebody be like you and not have it be scripted, have it be like a real moment. That's where social media, that's where it exploded to be able to respond in real time. So to not have that is a disadvantage for Quibi. Um, and also some of that content is just not interesting. Again, you give celebrities all this money, tell them to do 10 minutes of content a week or an episode, and they call all their best friends and they do what they're told. And it doesn't 
it's not enough time to create something unique if this is not your first hand. If this is not something that you know, like the back of your hand, how to create, you're not going to be really great at it. So I really do think that Quibi shouldn't even be having been created. There's absolutely no need for Quibi when you have a YouTube, a Twitch, you have uh, on-demand content, you have podcasts, you have social media. There's no need for a Quibi. I think you just got taken off their media list. <laughs> oh, well... <laughs> I'm real sorry, Quibi. <laughs> Thanks, Joel. I appreciate that. Hey, you guys, have you been having any discussions with your clients just about the logistics of resuming? Like, how would it, like, you think about, like, a, a soundstage, it's sealed, right? There's no AC. I mean, you've got, you know, a talent in there that's not going to want to be exposed, you know, Winter, I know you spend time in the uh, recording studio. That's also sealed, you know, um, you know, close in close quarters. Have you heard any sort of logistical approach to how to make that work? You know, you know what's interesting, Eric, you mentioned uh, studios, but actually on location is perceived to potentially be even more difficult because you, you can't control the environment. Um, and, and there are tons of discussions going on right now about, um, you, you know, guidelines and protocols, and they are, when you hear them, they, they, they almost sound um, like you can't believe them in terms of everything from how makeup is going to be administered, uh, you, you know, to actors. Yeah, how, do, how do you do that? How, what how do, do they say? They're talking about, you know, these, I actually heard a whole discussion recently specifically about makeup. And, you know, it's an important and very valued part of the production process. But I heard you know, makeup directors talking about how each one of those brushes is $70, $80, maybe more. And, you know, they're, they're, they use the same brushes on multiple actors yeah. on a given day. And, you know, when you drill down that deep, you realize, wow, this is really an enormous undertaking to get but production also, back up and running. Those people can buy their own brushes and bring them there. <laughs> like this is the thing that I'm annoyed about is that celebrities always need to be coddled. And I think this is the great equalizer. I know Madonna got dragged for that, but it is a great equalizer. You have brushes, you have entire rooms in your home celebrities to make up yourself when you're at home, bring your brushes and then have your maids clean the brushes. Yeah. It's these, I mean, they ha the resources are there. We're just greedy. So now we're learning to deal with what, it's like to not have the availability of greed on our side. And I just think that this is an equalizer. It, it actually, Alfred, Alfred, are you guys going back? Are you going to do a, a new, uh, a bunch of shows in Vegas? Well, what's happening with uh, Penn and Teller Fool Us? I mean, the show shoots seasonally for two weeks, two to three, three weeks early in the year for a summer run. So for all, as far as I know, the show is still scheduled to premiere the seventh season uh, Fool Us is scheduled to premiere in July, maybe June. See, it's I, I haven't heard specifically. Um, but one thing to, to Winner's point, there's a good article on Variety today from Kim Masters, who is just killing it with coverage on Hollywood and production. And there's an interview in there with Zoe Kravitz, who's uh, playing Catwoman in the new Batman, um, which is totally held up. And she made a point that so many makeup artists touch your face when you're getting made up. I mean, I can imagine someone in a Marvel movie who has to have blue skin completely being touched by a team of people. So it, there's, there's makeup just for your presentation. And then there's 
costume makeup, which is going to require a lot of people. How will the unions alloc- allow their members to go forward? That's the big question. The real big thing that we don't know yet is what is insurance going to do and what are the unions going to allow? And once those start to get decided and the dust settles, then I think we'll have a clearer picture of when and where we're going. Right. And, and you know, Eric, one thing that has been really um, taboo on movie sets for a while is this, a water bottle. And it's, you know, it's not environmental and, and, and they want people to, uh, you know, use a community water fountain or, or you know, sparklets or whatever. Bottles. Uh, but now they're saying this is going to become mandatory because of uh, COVID-19. So th- there's a real, you know, there's a real fundamental shift in thinking that's going to accompany any return to production. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Let's just go around and each of you tell us, uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you, where can they? Because in addition to the people that are listening now, we also release this as a podcast that'll be up forevermore. So go ahead and tell us if someone wants to contact you, where can they do that? You can find me. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just... (laughs) Eric, go ahead. Hey, um, well, you can find me on most platforms at Eric Deutsch, which is Eric with a K, last name Deutsch. That means it's hard to spell and hard to pronounce. Uh, You can find me there, except for a few platforms. There's another Eric Deutsch who's a musician, and and we're in a competition. Um, You can also email me anytime. My my firm is ExcelPR, so go to ExcelPR.com and uh, reach out anytime. When? You can find me at Winter, W-Y-N-T-E-R, Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, on Twitter. I love communicating with people on Twitter. That's my main place. DMs are open. That's the best way to reach me. I'm there more than my email. Alfred. Pretty much, uh, I'm pretty much still an email kind of guy. ahopton.pr at gmail is your way to find me. Um, but I'm pretty easy to find. Special thanks to Flux Branding, a world-renowned resource for defining your visual brand. Flux Branding is a group of creative visionaries and graphic designers dedicated to helping clients build brand identities. And you can find them online at ericschwartzman.com forward slash Flux Branding. And Digital Dragon, where children can develop the skills they need to prosper in the age of machines. Digital Dragon teaches digital literacy to tomorrow's programmers. More information at ericschwartzman.com forward slash DD. Join us next week for a discussion with Anya Rinzon. She is the head of growth at Restream, which allows you to stream to multiple locations at once. We're now streaming with Restream to YouTube, Facebook, and Periscope. Uh, And she's going to talk to us about how companies are using streaming to get the word out during the the lockdown. if you're watching this on Periscope, Facebook, or YouTube, uh, you know, you can always join us live on Wednesdays and ask questions uh, by signing up at prtechwednesdays.com. You'll get updates about future guests and emails with replays if you miss the live event. Um, you can also sign up for amazing bonus content on PR Tech Secrets at my blog, ericschwartzman.com forward slash blog. This has been Eric Schwartzman. We will see you next time on PR Tech Wednesdays. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys, guys. Thanks, Eric. Bye, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah.